Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that everyone who gazes at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it away from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than for your whole body to be cast into Gehenna. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than for your whole body to be cast into Gehenna. May Yahweh bless His word to our hearts today. Last week we dealt with how we can murder people with our words. Not physically murder them, but through things like hatred, anger, slurs, unforgiveness. Uh, Yeshua taught us this in the previous text here in Matthew 5. He began with, You have heard that it hath been said by them of old time or to them in the ancient times, but I say unto you. Remember the context is rabbinical interpretation. You have heard that it hath been said means this is how most rabbis that you know have interpreted this commandment. Strictly limited to physical murder. But I tell you, he's saying I'm not negating the aspect of the physical or the literal, but I'm telling you that it goes deeper. Let me pull back the literal law and show you the spirit of the law, the intent, the motivation behind the law. So the Pharisees and the scribes of Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, where they're called righteous, they believed in the commandment to not murder. But they really didn't take it deep enough. And that's what Yeshua challenged them on. And He tells us that our righteousness must go beyond or surpass the scribes and the Pharisees. So this week, Yeshua does the same thing with the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not murder is the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery or do not commit adultery is the seventh commandment. So the law says, do not commit adultery. And we know that that covers the physical act of adultery. So when Yeshua says, but I say unto you, he's not negating that the law teaches against the physical act. He's just telling us there's a deeper intent to the law. What is the deeper intent? Last year I taught through the Ten Commandments. And I came at the Seventh Commandment from a positive angle. We've heard a lot of Seventh Commandment teachings or commandment teachings on what not to do, but we forget that each of the Ten Commandments, or at least the ones that come at it from a negative angle, do not do this. To every negative there's a positive. So when Yahweh commands do not murder, he's also in the same sentence commanding save life, give life. When Yahweh commands do not steal, he's commanding give generously. You know, have have a be willing to communicate, as the old King James calls it. And when he commands do not commit adultery, he's commanding be faithful to your spouse. Be faithful in marriage. Love your spouse. Cherish your spouse. Be kind to your spouse. I came at it from that angle because I wanted it to be a little bit different. In this lesson, I'm going to get into some technical matters before we move into what Yeshua said. But do not commit adultery does equal to honor marriage. Marriage is taught first in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 with 
Adam and Eve, where Yahweh created Adam, and then He said it's not good for man to be alone. That's the first time Yahweh said something was not good. All through Genesis 1, He would create and He'd say, and it was good. The first time He said something's not good is when He said it's not good for man to be alone. So I will make a helper comparable to Him or a help meet to Him. And we know that Yahweh caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And some believe that Yahweh took out one rib from Adam's side. Brother TJ taught through Ephesians, which was great. He said he believed he took his whole side out and made the woman. And some people say that there's just DNA involved there. But from the man, he created a woman. And he brought the woman to the man. And the man said, now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. Therefore shall a man leave his family unit, his father and mother, and cleave to his wife, and the two, saith he, shall become one flesh. That's the first marriage in the Bible. Yahweh was the father bringing forth his daughter, his creation, Eve, to the man, Adam. And Yahweh designed for that to be where intimacy takes place in marriage. We learn that in Genesis 1. And two. So in one sense, do not commit adultery covers all sexual immorality. In one sense of the word. In a broad sense of the word. In another sense of the word though, what I'm going to talk about today, adultery is very specific. Adultery is taking the wife of another man. There is another word in the Bible... An older word, some of the newer translations just say sexual immorality or flee sexual immorality. But the older translations use the word fornication. Maybe at a later time I'll talk about where that word came from. But fornication covers a wider range um, of sexual immorality in general. The Greek word is porneia. And when you look up all of the uses of porneia in the Greek Septuagint and in the Greek New Testament, you'll see that it covers many different sexual sins. There are only three verses in the law of Moses that use the word adultery in English. Leviticus 20 verse 10 is one of them. Leviticus 20 verse 10, World English Bible says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, even he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So we see that it is in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20.14, do not commit adultery. It's there in Deuteronomy 5.18, the second giving of the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery. And Leviticus 20 verse 10 gives us a specific definition where we can narrow it down to the limited definition of the word adultery. This is the technical definition. We also find this in Leviticus chapter 18 verse 20 where the word adultery is not used but the same command or the same sin is spoken about. Leviticus 18.20 says, You shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. If you read Leviticus 18, that chapter covers many ways that we can commit sin, um, not just against Yahweh, but against our, our body. And this is one of them, lying carnally with your neighbor's wife. We also find this. This is another instance in the Torah that doesn't use the word adultery, but the concept of adultery, taking another man's wife, 
is there. I want to read this, and then I'll make a few comments. Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 through 27. It says, If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall remove evil from Israel. Obviously, if they shall both die, the death penalty, by the way, that was, that was the penalty for adultery on the earth. If a man lied with a woman that was married to a husband, the penalty, if they were found, two or more witnesses, was death. And this is obviously talking not about rape, but about it would be consensual here in verse 22. Verse 23, it says, If there is a young lady who is a virgin pledged to be married to a husband, and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The lady, because she didn't cry, being in the city, and the man, because he has humbled his neighbor's wife, so you shall remove the evil from among you. I want you to look at this for a second. In verse 23, where it talks about a virgin pledged to be married to a husband, that's what we would call engaged or betrothed. Someone who has been promised. Someone who has already been made a commitment to. As is customary in our day and time, the young man got down on his knee and he asked for the woman's hand in marriage. Then she's pledged to be married, they're engaged or they're betrothed. I want you to notice that in verse 23, she's called pledged to be married. But in verse 24, it says he has humbled his neighbor's wife. And this is because in the olden times, especially in ancient Hebrew times, pledged to be married, betrothed or engaged was much more serious than people take it today. As a matter of fact, even I'm a big fan of the Andy Griffith show. Most of you know that. And there's an episode where... Mr. Briscoe Darlin from the Darlin family that picks the banjos and plays the guitars, he thinks that Aunt B wants to marry him. He says, that was your heart speaking to my heart. Now my heart's answering. B, I'm declaring for you. And she says, oh, good heavens. <laughs> so you can't get it out of his mind. So he actually, without Andy Taylor's knowledge, he kidnaps Aunt B and takes her up to the mountains. It doesn't harm her, but he takes her there and they're you know, playing the music and everything and he thinks that she's in love with him. And Andy or B cannot convince Briscoe any different. But in the end, Andy plays a trick on Briscoe and Aunt B starts tricking him into cleaning up the house and, and when he doesn't have good manners at the table, she pops his hand with a spoon <laughs> and she tells him not to raise his voice at the dinner table. And he said, I'll raise hogs, I'll raise my voice, I'll raise anything I want to raise. <laughs> and he gets so upset at the end that he stands up from the dinner table and he puts his hands like this and he tells Andy Taylor, Sheriff Taylor, he says, slap them handcuffs on me, I'm breach of promising. In other words, I'm breaking the promise that I made to your Aunt B to marry her. Briscoe saw it as such a serious offense a breach of promise that he knew he was about to get locked up. And this show was just in the 1960s in an old country town. 
My point is that it used to be that engagement or betrothal was taken more serious than it is today. We learn here in the Bible, in the Law of Moses, that it was taken as though she was already considered to be the wife of that man. Uh, We learn this in the New Testament, in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, and in Luke chapter 1, how that Miriam is said to be betrothed to Joseph, but yet there's other texts in the narrative there that call Miriam Joseph's wife because she was promised to Joseph. Let's continue on here in verse 25. It says, But if the man finds the lady who is pledged to be married in the field, and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. That's talking about rape. And the difference between city and field is simply this. It's not that a woman cannot be raped in the city, and it's not that a woman cannot consent in the field. The point between city and field is consensual versus rape. In other words, there are cases where this betrothed girl could be playing the harlot and she is agreeing to this act of sexual immorality and therefore both the man and her that commit the sin and are found are to be put to death. There are other cases, though, where she was out in the field and she cried out, Help, help, I don't want this to happen. And nobody was there to see what was taking place. Nobody was there to help her. By the way, that is a verse in the Torah that teaches us self-defense. Not just self-defense, but defense when we see somebody in harm or in danger. Why would the law say there was no one there to help her? The implication is is that if you or I passed by a rape that was taking place, we are commanded by Yahweh to try to stop what is happening. That's good, brother. Okay? So the law teaches self-defense and defense of, of your neighbor as well in this text. Verse 26, But to the lady you shall do nothing. There is, there is in the lady no sin worthy of death. For as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. So he's saying that when a man rises up with malicious intent and murders somebody, it's the same thing as when a man rises up with malicious intent and rapes this young betrothed woman. For he found her in the field, the pledge to be married lady cried, and there was no one to save her. There's that verse I was talking about shortly thereafter. So... Back to Yeshua's words in Matthew chapter 5. So we've talked a little bit about adultery in the law. We've talked about taking another man's wife, taking another man's betrothed, which is equal with taking another man's wife. Same thing there. Same penalty. In Matthew 5, 27-28, Yeshua says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. The Scripture is just quoted here from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. But remember, it's more than a quotation. Yeshua is telling us that when the rabbis quoted this verse, they were limiting it to just the act of physically taking another man's wife or physically taking another man's betrothed. So the rabbis were quoting it, but they were teaching and interpreting the law and it was either wrong or it was lacking. It wasn't the full extent of the law. And remember, in the lessons on fulfill and destroy, we learned that in the cultural context, when Yeshua said, I didn't come to destroy the law, What he meant was, I did not come to misinterpret or misapply the law. But I rather came to fulfill it, meaning properly interpret it. Show you how it should be carried out. Show you the law's true intent. 
So some people here think that Yeshua makes this stricter when He says in verse 28, But I tell you that everyone who gazes at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Some people think that Yeshua is one-upping Yahweh, that He's making the law stricter. The law taught against physical adultery, but now the Messiah makes it stricter and says you can't even do it in your heart. By the way, the World English Bible where it says everyone who gazes, that's a good English translation. The, the Old King James is not wrong when it says looks upon because the, the understanding based on the context is looks with the intent to lust. Not just looks like I'm looking out at all the sisters in the congregation as I preach today. Or if I see someone at the Ace Hardware and I talk to them and they're a woman and I look at them in the face. That's not what Yeshua is condemning. It's similar to when Proverbs 23 says, Look not upon wine when it is red in the cup. That is not a commandment that if you have red wine in front of you, you have to turn away. The, the implication is you look with the intent, I'm going to get drunk. That's the implication here. You look with the intent, I want to lust after that lady, that neighbor's wife. So everyone who gazes is very good. Very good English translation here. I don't think that Yeshua was one-upping the law of Moses. I don't think that He was adding to the law. The reason I don't think that is because if we track back to last week, the law didn't only teach do not murder physically, but it also taught against unlawful anger and hatred and slurs and bitterness and unforgiveness. I'll give you two verses. I could go on and on, but two verses from the Proverbs. I pulled these up today. Proverbs 10 verse 30, once again talking about the sins of the mouth. It says, The mouth of the righteous produces wisdom, but a perverse tongue will be cut out. Proverbs 18 verse 21 says, Life and death are in the power of the tongue. That's a powerful verse because a lot of times, and I think my mama meant well as a lot of my teachers meant well when I heard this, but when I was growing up, a lot of times if you would get picked on in school, they would remind you, just say sticks and stones may break my bones, but names or words will never hurt me. And that saying really isn't biblical. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. You can, through your words, you can build somebody up and make them feel vibrant, or you can tear them down. Life and death are in the power of the tongue, the ancient proverb says. So, it's the same thing with heart adultery. Heart adultery, or committing adultery in your heart and in your mind, was just as much a sin in the Old Covenant as it is in the New Covenant. Just as much. For example, this is so obvious, I don't know why people miss this, but in Deuteronomy 5 verse 21, this is the tenth commandment, second giving of the law. It says, verbatim, do not desire your neighbor's wife or covet your neighbor's house, his field, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So desire and covet here are used interchangeably. And the first thing here is do not desire or do not covet your neighbor's wife. Coveting is a sin that takes place not in action, but in mind and in heart. Now, coveting a lot of times will lead to the action. <laughs> the Tenth Commandment deals with our desires. It teaches us that some of the desires that we have are sins. 
But then there's commandments like the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, which means if you desire your neighbor's wife, you may eventually end up lying carnally with your neighbor's wife. Same thing with stealing. If you desire your neighbor's ox, you may end up stealing your neighbor's ox. So the seventh and the eighth commandments, do not commit adultery and do not steal, talk about the physical action. But the tenth commandment deals with the sins of the heart and of the mind, what we think about. Imagine that. That's a commandment nobody else sees when you keep or when you break. But Yahweh knows. Yahweh knows when we desire what does not belong to us that belongs to our neighbor. Next slide. Proverbs 6, 23-29. Here's another text that speaks against lust or desire for your neighbor's wife, adultery, during the Old Testament times. This is not just a New Testament teaching. This is an Old Testament teaching. Proverbs 6, 23. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. To keep you from the immoral woman from the flattery of the wayward wife's tongue. The wayward wife. The wife that wants to play the harlot. See, The King James says the evil woman. World English Bible says the wayward wife's tongue. The Septuagint says from your neighbor's wife. Verse 25. Don't lust after her beauty in your heart. That sounds exactly like what Yeshua says in Matthew 5.28. But I say unto you, if you gaze upon this woman to lust after her in your heart, you've committed adultery already with her in your heart. Once again, verse 25, Don't lust after her beauty in, her, in your heart, neither let her captivate you with her eyelids, for a prostitute reduces you to a piece of bread. The adulteress hunts for your precious life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap and his clothes not be burned? That's rhetorical. The answer is, no, that can't happen. If you scoop fire in your lap, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get burned. Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Verse 29, So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not be unpunished. This is a very good text. Actually, Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 talk about the woman that plays the harlot on her husband and how that we are not to be involved with her. This is the same thing that Yeshua says in Matthew 5, verse 28. Yeshua is not introducing new law, but He is focusing, He's putting a, a microscope on the true intent and motive of the seventh commandment. How is He challenging the Pharisees? Because in each of these cases in Matthew 5, where He says, you've heard that it hath been said, meaning interpreted by the rabbis, but I tell you the proper way to understand the law. He's always challenging something that the Pharisees and the scribes believe and teach. But how is he challenging the Pharisees here? Because if you look at the ancient sources in Judaism, in Hebraism, most everyone would agree with this doctrine of anti-lust. Most of the rabbis would say that it was wrong to lust after your neighbor's wife. So how is he challenging their understanding here. The way that Yeshua is challenging the scribes and Pharisees, I believe, is He's placing the blame on the man that is doing the lusting. Because when you look in those same Hebraic rabbinical sources, most rabbis taught that lust was caused by women. 
so that if a man lusted after a woman, it wasn't the man's fault, it was the woman's fault. And they would write how to be on guard for women. They had this idea. Women were looked very low. They were looked very low upon by a lot of people in that day and time. There was even a prayer that some of the Jewish men would pray and they would say, thank God I'm not a Gentile heathen. Thank God I'm not a woman. I taught on that when I was going through Galatians chapter 3 where it says that in Christ, as it regards to dignity and value, there is no male or female. But you're all equal in the Messiah. See, But, but most rabbis would agree with lust, but they would say it's the woman's fault. As a matter of fact, it was... In Judaism, traditionally, the married women were to wear a head covering whenever they would leave the house. And the unmarried women were not. You can read about this in the Mishnah and the Gemara and the Talmud and all that. The reason that the unmarried women remained uncovered was to attract a husband. And when the head covering was put on the married women, it was to let the men know that... That woman belongs to another man. The rabbis would be very, very upset if they saw a married woman out without her head covering on and they would say, you're causing men to lust. Yeshua takes the blame off of the woman here and says, whoever is doing the lusting, that is who is held culpable for the sin. We always want to sin and then place the blame on somebody else. And that's what the rabbis were doing. And it doesn't just go with this commandment, it's with a lot of commandments. Even with Adam in the garden, he said, the woman you gave to me, she's the one that made me eat of the forbidden fruit. We always want to place the blame. Well, I did it because of this, or I did it because I wasn't feeling well, or I did it because the devil made me do it. We like to give the devil a lot of blame. Devil made me do it. Devil made me do it. He's the scapegoat. We never want to take the initiative to be held responsible for our own sins. It takes humility to hold yourself responsible for your own sins, but I promise you it is liberating and it is freeing when you have committed a sin to not say or blame it on anybody else, but to tell Yahweh, I am sorry, I have sinned. Go to your neighbor if it's against them. I am sorry, I have sinned. Not if I hurt your feelings or if I did this to you. That's still trying to weasel your way around not asking for forgiveness and placing the blame on something or somebody else. So there are wicked women and wicked men in the world. There are both males and females whose intention is to wreck homes, is to act wily, as we say. Their intention is ungodly and unholy. But not all males and not all females are that way. Don't judge all by the actions of some. And I think that's what the rabbis were doing. There is such a thing as the wicked woman in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. That doesn't mean all women are that way because when we get to Proverbs 31, we find the woman whose price is far above fine rubies. The righteous woman. I've experienced modesty teaching in church that was directed solely at the female gender. Most of the sermons that I've ever heard in church on modesty were directed 
at the women. But the Bible directs it at both the man and the woman. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, Yahweh made or appointed for Adam and Eve coats of skin to cover their nakedness. Not just Eve. He didn't just give Eve a tunic. And He didn't give Eve a tunic and Adam a pair of breeches either. He gave Eve a tunic or a robe and He gave Adam a tunic or a robe. And He said, this is how you're to cover your nakedness. Both of them are to be modest. I've heard men lay the blame on women. Well, I wouldn't have such a problem with lust if women wouldn't dress a certain way. Listen, it is true that we are to be modest people on our outward adornment. We are. We are not to let our clothes be a frame for our bodies, but a frame to accentuate our face. It is wrong for us to dress provocatively. It is wrong for us to dress immodestly. But most people in the world don't see it that way. And so when we go out into the world and we experience both men and women that are dressed immodestly, half-clothed, or a lot of times barely any clothes on at all, we cannot, if we lust, we cannot put the blame on them. The blame is on the person that is doing the lusting. As the people of Yahweh, both men and women, as the people of Yahweh, we are to be led and guided by the Holy Spirit Martin Luther said he cannot control if a bird flies over his head, but he can control whether or not that bird builds a nest in his mind. So things will happen to you and you will see things on a day-to-day basis in the community that you go. And you may look, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, you don't have to gaze. You don't have to look with the intent to lust in your heart. This is taught by Yeshua. This is taught in the Old Testament. But Yeshua's words specifically here are directed at the male gender. Uh, Matter of fact, when He says, but I tell you that everyone who gazes at a woman, see that word everyone? This is one of those cases where you determine word meanings by the context. Everyone means every male that gazes at a woman. There are texts in the Bible that deal with homosexual practice, but that's another subject. Women with women and men with men. Another subject, Romans 1, Leviticus 18, so forth and so on. This is specifically talking about the man who gazes upon his neighbor's wife to lust after her in his heart. He's already committed adultery with her in his heart. Yeshua challenges the rabbinical interpretation of lust always being the woman's fault, and He places the blame on the man who is doing the lusting. So, is heart adultery equal to physical adultery? The answer to that question is no and yes. Because you have to determine, you have to talk about specifics here. It is Heart adultery is not equal to physical adultery in this sense. Heart adultery is a sin. And we're going to see it's a, it's a bad sin. But physical adultery is a sin and a crime. There are certain sins in the Bible that are also crimes. Adultery is one. Murder is one. Sabbath breaking is one. Stealing is one. When I say crimes, I mean things that can be punished by the governing authorities on a civil level. Physical adultery is both a sin and a crime. Heart adultery, you cannot punish a person for heart adultery with the death penalty. doesn't mean it's not a sin, but you can't punish them with the death penalty. The point here is that Yeshua is not saying they're equivalent one-to-one, but He is saying they're both sins and they're both serious 
And it is because all adultery begins in the heart and with the eyes. Adultery never begins with the physical act. It always begins by looking where you ought not, thinking what you ought not, and letting your heart dwell on what you ought not. Usually, there can be cases where it could be you know, spur of the moment and it could happen like that, but I think most of the time people think about it for a long time before it ever takes place. Remember what Yahweh tells us about the tassels. He tells us in Numbers 15 to wear the tassels with the thread of blue in them. And look at what he says in verse 39, Numbers 15. He says, these will serve as tassels for you to what? To look at. Why? Because when you look at the tassels, that thought is what reminds you to be obedient to the commandments. There again, righteous works begin by looking. Just like evil works begin with looking, righteous works begin with looking. So that you remember all of Yahweh's commands and obey them and not become unfaithful by following your own heart and your own eyes. So sins begin with the heart and with the eyes. But righteousness can begin with the heart and the eyes as well. Sin begins on the inside and it progresses to outward actions. Same thing with righteousness. And when it comes to not sinning sinning against Yahweh, a fringe helps. It does. But we still must pray, Yahweh, create in me a clean heart. Change my heart, O Yah. Make me like You. Make me more, more like You. Because a fringe by itself is not going to do anything. It's so funny. I see a lot of Messianic men, they get so excited, and it's not always a bad thing, but they get so excited and they... They begin to wear the tassels and then they want to condemn everybody that doesn't wear the tassels. And the reality is is that the tassel is simply an outward mark that you can wear and your heart still be filthy before Yahweh. And I'm not knocking the tassels. I wear them. I've worn them for a long time. It's just like with baptism. Baptism is an outward act. And it's important and we should be baptized. But the outward act by itself doesn't change the inward man. I've baptized some people that went down a sinner and came up a sinner and never changed their life. Why? Because of the heart. Because of the mind. Let's not diminish heart adultery. Just because it's not a crime, let's not not diminish it. Because look at what Yeshua says right after this in verses 29-30. through He says, If your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Throw it away from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than for your whole body to be cast into Gehenna. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than for your whole body to be cast into Gehenna. So this falls, these two verses fall right on the heels about Yeshua's statement of heart adultery. Is Yeshua speaking literally? No, He's not. But he's using physical language to make a point. This is why I know that he's not speaking literally because he says if your right eye causes you to stumble. Is he telling us that the right eye can commit adultery but the left eye can't? No, the left eye can commit heart adultery too. It can look upon a woman to gaze after her just as well. The reason he says right eye and right hand is because most people then and now are right-handed. And the right hand and the right side was considered the stronger, authoritative, powerful side. 
That doesn't mean I look down on anybody that's left-handed. <laughs> Neither does Yahweh. Left-handed person can be saved just like a right-handed person can be saved. But that's why he uses right, right eye and right hand here. So, notice the progression too from the eye to the hand. The eye is, represents our thoughts and what we look at. The hand represents we, how we do our actions, how we work. Remember in Deuteronomy 6 verse 8, Yahweh tells us the commandments are to be a sign on our hand and as frontlets between our eyes. Now, many Hebrews, and I don't have anything against this, many Hebrews interpreted that both metaphorically and literally, and they would wear phylacteries. I believe in that, and I do that. But, it's definitely not just a literal commandment. It's metaphorical, meaning, frontless between your eyes, meaning you need to think about the commandments all the time. And a sign on your hand means you need to do the commandments all the time. Because we do actions and work with our hands. Some people in church history took this literally. As a matter of fact, the word hand, and I'll just brush over this briefly. We have little children here. But the word hand sometimes is used in the Old Testament metaphorically to refer to a, the masculine gender. And one of the quote-unquote church fathers by the name of Origen in the 200s A.D., about the middle of the 3rd century A.D., he took this commandment literally and he believed the hand referred to the male organ and he committed castration. I don't think that it's, that's what it's referring to. I think right hand means there's also a left hand and I think it's a metaphor. But let's not lose sight of Yeshua's words here. Sometimes one member can cause the whole body a decline. That's what he's saying. Doctors amputate legs sometimes so the entire body is not contaminated. So we've got to get rid of this leg, we've got to get rid of this arm, or else the whole body will become septic. We prune dead limbs off of bushes and trees. We remove rotten fruit. A hiker out in the wilderness might cut off their limb. I've read stories about this in order to save their life because they're caught in a rock. And it would be better for your eye to be lost than your whole body. Same with the hand. I would rather lose my hand than I would my whole life. That's what Yeshua is saying. Be killing sin before sin kills you. If you don't nip sin in the bud now, your whole body may have to suffer later in Gehenna. Remember Proverbs 6, 27-29. Can a man embrace fire in his clothes, not be burned? Can a man walk on coals without scorching his feet? So it is with one who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Yeshua is telling us that whatever causes you to stumble, get rid of it. It's not important enough for you to not have salvation. That's what He's saying. And He's putting a little bit of fear in there. He's teaching us through fear because He says, better that your eyes lost or your hands lost than your whole body be cast into Gehenna, which... Some Bibles say hell or hell fire. So he's motivating us through fear of the judgment that is coming, the hell fire that is coming. He's saying, look, if you fear Yahweh and you don't want your entire body to be destroyed in Gehenna and go to that judgment, then get rid of an eye or a hand now. This could be things. This could be people. This could be a job. Some people shouldn't work at a certain job because they can't contain their lust. Some people shouldn't hang around other people because those other people are wicked 
people that have eyes full of adultery and hearts full of murder. And they begin to rub off on you as a person. Or you may have a thing like the internet where you can look upon things that you ought not look upon. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. We've got little children in here. Don't think that sin comes to you and says, I'm here to destroy your marriage. Or I'm here to destroy your family. That's not how sin approaches you. Sin or the devil approaches you as it's going to be okay. You can do this and nobody will ever know. This is not going to destroy your marriage. This is not going to destroy your children or your family. This is not going to destroy your friendships. That's how sin shows up. Like that. And it's enticing and it's pleasurable for a season. But the thief comes not to give life, but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So we should get rid of things in our life. If, if there are things or people or a job or places that cause us to stumble, Yeshua is saying those things are not important enough for you to lose your salvation. For your whole body to be cast into hellfire. That's what He's saying. Do not even put yourself in a position to sin. Stop it before it ever gets to a certain point. Don't see how close you can drive to the ditch of sin and think it's okay, I can get closer and my wheels are not going to go off into the ditch. And you've got a big cavern that's a mile deep right there beside you and you get closer and closer and closer to the ditch. We should be seeing how further and further away we can get from the ditch of sin. John Wesley, the old Methodist preacher, said, Part with anything, however dear to you or otherwise useful, if you cannot avoid sin while you keep it. How important is a thing to you versus everlasting life? How important is a person or a job or a place to you if it costs you everlasting life? Yeshua was a hellfire preacher. Some translations say hell here, but He uses the word Gehenna, which is an Aramaic word. It's a a compound word. Gehenna, which means the valley of Henna, or the valley of Hinnom. And He uses the word Gehenna to produce a cause in us to act righteously because we are not just supposed to serve Yahweh out of love we are also supposed to serve Him out of fear. My mama used to tell me when I was a little boy, I can still hear her. Straighten up, Matthew, or your daddy will give you a spanking when he gets home. You know what that did? That produced fear in me. I didn't want to have be disciplined that way. So most of the time, not all the time, most of the time I say, yes, ma'am, and I straighten up. Because if mama spanked me, it wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't. But if daddy spanked me, it hurt. We learn here in this text that it is okay for fear to motivate us to righteousness. A lot of people think that it's wrong to serve Yahweh out of fear. And I think it's wrong to only serve Yahweh out of fear. But the law teaches there are several places in Deuteronomy that commands us to fear Yahweh. To be afraid of Yahweh. You know why? Because He's a mighty one, not just of grace and mercy. He's a mighty one of wrath and vengeance. Hebrews 12 says, Our God is a consuming fire. Therefore, we should have reverence and awe. Reverence means fear. 
Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom was the garbage dump outside of the city south of Jerusalem where there was a fire that continuously burned. It never went out. Smoke was always coming up from the fire and the fire continuously burned and refuse and dead animals and sometimes even the bodies of dead criminals were thrown into Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, outside of the city of Jerusalem where they were burned up. And Yeshua uses this word, Gehenna, in His teachings as a word that existed at the time and to give you a picture of the final judgment of fire. The old King James says fire and brimstone. Luke 17, Revelation 14. The HCSB says fire and sulfur. That's pretty much what brimstone is. That helps us to understand a little bit more. And the reason brimstone or sulfur is used is because it has a purifying quality. In other words, the fire burns up the wicked. It burns up the evil. And I believe in what's called annihilationism or conditional immortality when it comes to the wicked. I don't believe that people will burn forever and ever in the lake of fire. And that's because I don't believe people are created immortal. I believe that we're mortal and have to be given immortality. That'll come at another sermon. The point is, is that Gehenna is talking about hellfire and that that's the final judgment that you'll have to undergo if you don't pluck your eye out or cut your hand off to get rid of sin. We are to serve Yahweh, once again, not just out of love, but also out of fear. Matthew 10.28 says, Don't fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, or in Gehenna. The context there is persecution. The disciples were experiencing persecution. And Yeshua is telling them, look, don't be afraid. When somebody persecutes you for righteousness, don't be afraid of them because all they can do is to kill or destroy your body. But they cannot destroy your soul. Rather, this is who you are to be afraid of. The one who is able to destroy both your soul and your body in hell, in Gehenna. Who is that? Almighty Yahweh. That's the one we're supposed to be afraid of. So in conclusion, these verses teach us, they teach you and me, to keep a watch or a guard over our heart and over our eyes. This is why we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The human inclination is, is this. This is what us humans say. Well, it's okay. Grace covers that. We'll be alright. Now, I was talking with somebody this past week, and I asked them, I said, imagine how that people treat their relationship with Yahweh. Imagine treating, treating your relationship with your husband or wife or your friend that way. That you continuously go back and you steal from your friend's wallet or from your neighbor's pocketbook. Or you continuously do wrong to your spouse. And every time they want to talk about it, and every time that they, they say, we need to make amends, you say, it's okay, grace is you know. Let me pull out the grace card. It's all right. I'll be okay. Grace, you got to forgive me. Mercy, grace. How would how would that feel on an earthly plane in an earthly relationship? You know what you would do? Now, what I would do if I had somebody that habitually treated me that way, I would cut ties with them. I'd have to cut ties with them in marriage or as a friend. I can't be friends with somebody that steals from me constantly or treats me like garbage constantly. I understand things come up. Things happen. We forgive. But people that are genuinely sorry repent with their deeds and with their actions and with their works. 
And that's how it should be with us and Yahweh. When we do wrong against Yahweh, and we all have, if we're genuinely sorry, we not only ask Him to forgive us, but we strive not to commit or practice the same sin that we practiced. If we treat our earthly relationships with honor, how much more should we treat our heavenly relationship with Yahweh with honor? See? May we all in humility search our hearts and remove from our lives what hinders us. And I want to say this. I want to end with this. I want you to know that there is forgiveness and there is mercy for those who have genuinely asked and repented. That's the Gospel. The good news is is that no matter where you come from or what you've done, if you genuinely ask Yahweh to forgive you and repent of your sin, He will wipe it all clean. That's beautiful. And the answer practically is this. Holy marriage. Righteous marriage. Seek a spouse to marry, to love, and to serve Yahweh with for the rest of your life. That's the answer to eyes full of adultery or eyes full of fornication or sexual immorality. I'll close with Proverbs 5, 18 through 20. It's one of those verses, you know, it's in the Bible. People squirm though when you read it. But it's biblical and it's so true. It says, let your fountain be blessed. He's talking to the men. And take pleasure in the wife of your youth. I've been married now for 22, almost 23 years. My wife, Tisha, is the wife of my youth. I got married to her when I was 16 years old. And she's still my definition of beautiful. And when we're 60, 70, and Yahweh's will, 89 and 100, she'll still be my definition of beautiful. Because she is my wife, and I take pleasure in the wife of my youth. A loving doe, a graceful fawn, let her breasts satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. Why, my son, would you be infatuated with a forbidden woman or embrace the breast of a stranger? Let us guard our hearts and our minds. Young men, young women, old men, old women, all of us, before it is everlasting too late. Almighty Yahweh, thank You for this time of Bible study and Bible teaching. I pray that it is a blessing to the congregation. I love You, Yahweh. Help us to put this to practice and let our light shine. Let us be different and love according to Your law. Through Yeshua, I pray. Amen.